Welcome to another episode of the NC Raw podcast. Today, we get a chance to check in with the organizers of Reawaken Australia. Reawaken Australia is a conference that is taking place in Adelaide, Australia. Uh, Some good friends of mine who I've met and connected with through this podcast are collectively organizing this conference to create a conversation surrounding psychosis and a way to connect and take meaningful action surrounding conversations about psychosis. It was a, an awesome opportunity to check in with these guys. Uh, I was able to talk with them for about 30 minutes and then record the keynote speech given by Matt Ball uh, with the title, Seeing the Non-Psychosis That We Share. So you got about a 30-minute podcast and around an hour's worth of a keynote speech from Matt Ball. I hope you enjoy the conversation and the speech. I totally did. These are also an awesome group of folks. Um, be sure to check out their work through reawakenaustralia.com and be on the lookout for Reawaken to uh, travel to the United States in the very near future. Give it up for the crew from Reawaken Australia. The opinions expressed in this podcast are the views of the NCR team and the individuals interviewed. We do not consider ourselves to be mental health professionals. Our mission is to explore the various pathways to recovery and to give a voice to those affected by or involved in the care of substance use disorders. Some content may be mature for younger audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Ready, set, go. Hello, guys. Hi. Welcome to the NC Raw podcast. I see a couple of familiar faces sitting up in the front row. Matt Ball, Oryx Cohen, how you doing? Good. Yeah, excellent. And I, before we get started, I just wanted to say if, if my family ends up watching this, hello, I miss you guys. Wish you were here. Awesome. I'm surprised you didn't bring them with you, man. <laughs> Not this time, but PJ brought his family, which is really cool. Yeah. I'm sure they'll be calling at the most inopportune time. <laughs> 
Hey, uh, Matt, go ahead and give me some introductions. You got a you got a uh, nice group with you today, so let me know who's with you. Yeah, this is great. So this is PJ Moynihan, producer and owner of Digital Ad Media, uh, producer of Healing Voices and Upcoming Recovering Addiction. Thank you. Um, Stephanie Mitchell, uh, co-director with me at Humane Clinic and a lovely, wonderful friend and person and therapist. And this is Ben. Karen. Karen, who... I didn't even know Ben before two days ago, but what I do know is this is a beautiful guy who is just giving so much to us to make reawaken everything it is. Um, so Ben's over from Massachusetts. Massachusetts. New York City. New York City. PJ, where are you from? I'm from Massachusetts. Mass. Okay, cool. So you guys are all gathered together for Reawaken Australia. And yeah. we talked about it in depth when Matt was on the podcast a little bit a couple months back and maybe we could just like get a reset on what has taken place over the last couple days um what 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 are some of your goals what did you guys hope to achieve what type of audience are you serving yeah well look I mean I'm not gonna start and then we'll, you know I think it's probably just useful to recap on eight months ago uh, Stephanie and I were online with PJ and Oritz and there was a suggestion they could build on the Healing Voices kind of community that we've built over here using the film and maybe they could come to Australia and um, me and Stephanie in our foolish, foolhardy ways went, yeah, 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 let's do that. <laughs> um, so what we found ourselves doing was underwriting this $50,000 bill and uh, stumbling towards this. but. Then everyone's arrived and um, we've just created a space of people spending time in connection. We've got some amazing speakers, not many speakers. We've really kept it narrow. So there's lots of time for reflection and connection. Uh, we've got some projects. We're gonna produce two eBooks out of it. Um, we're defacing or re the, renaming the DSM. Um, Rewrite. Rewriting, DSM. Yeah. yeah, which is a real joy and um, yeah, there's just a good community building. I wonder what anyone else has got to say. Yeah, I just wanted to say it's also a beautiful place we're at. We're at a, we're at a sanctuary here with, with some beautiful gardens, um, and the grounds are, are, are amazing. Um, some good food, too. Um, someone, someone said the other day that we're, we're being nurtured with food and, and connection. Um, we purposely kept the numbers pretty small. We capped it at 110 because this this is about connection. It says on our shirts, connection, compassion, meaningful action. But I really think the core is, is that connected piece. And we've been at it for about a day and a half, and we're seeing that happen. It's a beautiful thing. People are connecting one-on-one. -on -one. They're connecting in, in groups. Um, someone said, I think, yesterday that it's it's kind of a shocking feeling like they feel safe here and they don't normally feel safe in the world um which which is a beautiful thing and so yes there's going to be there are already meaningful actions happening here and meaningful actions that will come out from this we're, we're actually doing a rally on friday where we're gonna be out in front of the parliament building right yeah. so we're we're wanting some change in in society um, but we're really thinking that change starts here, and we and and it's happening. People are 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 doing it um, and connecting, and we're all doing this together. So it's 
I just woke up this morning feeling happy. I was like, yeah. I'm glad to be here. This is, this is a beautiful thing. I wanted to ask you, Oryx, what are some of the similarities in the things that you've experienced over the last couple of days in Australia compared to the work that you're doing back home in Boston? Um, I think, I think it's, it's the same work yeah. basically that we, and, and, and I think it's inspiring because, um, you know, for example, our core training that we do at the National Empowerment Center is emotional CPR, which is basically all about human connection again. Um, and you, how you can bring a group of, of strangers together for two days, um, through that training. And, and create this type of atmosphere, this type of community where people feel safe, people feel connected to others. Um, so that's, I think it's consistent through all the work that we do in the States. And I think the challenge is then bringing that out to the, the mainstream, the broader community, because I, I think that people are really craving this, like people are feeling isolated, people are feeling alone. Um, and you know disconnected from the neighbors um just disconnected from almost everything and so um yeah i mean this this is honestly it's probably been like the most intentional um experience that i've had in terms of, of doing this for like a full we're here for a full week and i think that adds a depth to to what we're doing um but yeah, it's definitely consistent with what we do, what we're trying to do back home. I think just knowing Matt from the last podcast, he tends to just like that. That's a natural skill that he has. He tends to like bring that out of people. I talked to him for about an hour a few months back and felt like I've known him for my whole life. You know, I really do. Um, <laughs> tell me about tell me about that rewriting the DSM, because that's something that really interests me. I'm actually taking a class right now um, at the community college called Intake and Assessment. And the entire class is nothing but case studies, case study after case study, role play. And I find myself often frustrated. Um, very similar belief systems to some of the work that Matt does. Um, so can you tell me what, like, what that's all about and what, why you're doing it and what, what the work entails and what would it, what's it going to look like? Yeah, um, I'll speak to that. So, um, we have this group of volunteers that have come along with us on this journey around reawaken. And one of the volunteers named Jane, she really wanted to, um, you've seen a project, um, similar where people are taking pages from the DSM and they had used sort of like various art journaling techniques to transform the page from being about pathology to being about the person. And so um, what we were hoping to do is that each person can choose a page and it can be something they've been diagnosed with, it can be something that they object to, something that resonates with them, whatever that meaning they want to make from it. Um, they rip that out of the DSM. So we've got a, we've bought a couple of DSMs, amazingly. Which is a horrible thing to do. It was a do, very right? strange thing I think, I, can't get your, You can't get your tax back on it. Right? It's an illegal product. That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, <no>, not strange. <laughs> we, um, we actually had um, 
I, I flicked out an email to the team when we bought them and um, PJ and Oryx are part of that and I sort of said, I've ordered the DSMs, they're on their way and PJ's like, okay, now I'm confused. <laughs> It's a different type of conference. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, now, and now we're reading from the DSR. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what we're doing is we're just seeing these beautiful pieces of um, meaning com coming out of this experience. And um, I want to tell you just a couple of things that have been really amazing and terrible. Um, we, we had this lovely experience of gathering together prior to the conference to kind of have a bit of a play with doing this. And so we sat down, a bunch of us volunteers, and got the DSMs out and we went, we started flicking through what pages might we want to transform. And um, I've never read a DSM before and it was very disturbing and yeah, like shocking. It? it was very confronting. And I was just, I suppose you've heard, I've heard about it and I know what, you know, I've read some of the diagnostic criteria for things like borderline online, but to actually flip through the DSM itself and see things like major depressive disorder if you have an episode of feeling down for more than two weeks, you can get that diagnosis. Like crazy stuff, very disturbing. Anyway, um, so then what we did was we sat together and we had created this sort of playful space that I think arose out of the pain we were actually experiencing. Um, playful space of, of mocking, but also kind of talking about the difficulties, sharing our own experience of being labelled and what that had been like. So it was actually a very deep process. It wasn't simply a process of putting some art on this page. And um, so I know the page that I did, I, I've done a couple now, and one of them I specifically took words out of the text and highlighted only the words that seemed important that were actually transformative. So kind of really picking out. I, I chose um, ADHD, which I don't have, but I kind of think is a completely ridiculous diagnosis. Um, and I kind of highlighted, you know, like, um, things like curious and attention and um, dreaming and, you know, all the lovely words around it and just left out all the nasty pathologizing labels because it seems so important to highlight the giftedness in that experience. Um, and other people have done other things. Um, do you want to say what you did? That was so awesome. What you well, did. I did narcissistic personality disorder, um, which has always been this kind of horrible shame in my life that someone gave me that label. And, um, you know, kudos to the therapist who wrote to the psychiatrist to give this label because at the end of therapy, she actually said I was wrong. But nonetheless, it's kind of stuck with me as this, you know, I don't know what it's like in America, but over here, if you have a label of narcissistic personality disorder, people don't like, you know, you, you, you know it's kind of this irony that actually you're probably craving love and connection and people tell you you're antisocial and mean and vile. And I, as I was defacing mine, I, I, um, it reminded me of when my um, dad left home and the song, I Want to Know What Love Is by Foreigner was in the charts. <laughs> and, and, you know, that really, you know, and I'm looking at this label of a person that's craving adoration and attention and being valued. And I'm thinking, yeah, you know, what does it feel like when your dad sits down and tells you and your brothers and sisters that he's leaving home? Well, I don't think you know much what love feels like in that moment. You know, so it was painful. It was fun as well, but it was really, you know, really confronting. Um, and yesterday to see a dozen people sat around the table, ripping out a page and <laughs> rewriting their narrative was just inspiring. Yeah. You know, it's hopeful. 
And so we have this dream and I really hope it becomes a reality because I don't have the time to put into it. So I'm hoping someone will take it up. <laughs> but we have this dream that once everyone gathers their pages, we're going to make an ebook, which is great. But the bigger dream is we're going to actually try and make this um, a, a, a big national art exhibition that goes around to the major art galleries and, um, and that we really try and talk about um, in the mainstream, I just have this real thing that we have to have these conversations outside our little cloistered collectives of people understanding this and really go to spaces um, where people aren't thinking about this in order to kind of talk about, you know, can we start to think about it differently? It's not really about labels. It's about people's experiences. And, um, so I don't know how that all come together and I'm happy to be a part of it, but that's kind of part of the dream of this beginning here to be something bigger. Beautiful, man. Um, I love the fact that you plan to take that out and to do more with it and to kind of like expand upon that, because I think that a big part of like why I do what I do is that there's so many unique individuals like you guys and like the work that I'm doing here, like the work that orcs and PJ do up in Boston and that it take it's, it's, how do we connect the dots and how do we bring each other together to kind of like share that message out and to get it out into the mainstream. And so like to carry on that project in such a beautiful way, um, it's going to be powerful. PJ, I want you to tell me a funny, tell me a funny, the funniest thing that has happened this week with these guys. What has been the most hilarious part of the, of the week so far? <laughs> There's still lots to choose from. There's a lot to choose from. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if I can necessarily like pull out an anecdote that, that quickly, but I, I think that what we're experiencing is just like a real sense of uh, community with one another. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's like we're all sharing this, well, to paint a picture for you, you know, we're all sharing this little apartment downstairs at this monastery. So it's like myself and my wife, my two young kids are down there, orcs and matter sharing, sharing a room. Steph and, and Bernie, one of the other organizers, are sharing. So we're all sort of like this little micro family in the basement of the monastery. Uh, and that could have been a disaster. I mean, that's a, that could have been an utter and complete disaster. And, uh, and uh, it's just sort of a beautiful thing. Like we were joking last night about how we could actually just stay here and live here. And, you know, and, and, and I'm sure your families would have to come and, you know, and, and take a residence as well. But um, yeah, it's just sort of there's an ease of, of our relation to our relationship um that as as friends and as organizers that i think is translating into um what reawaken is and 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 how people are coming together in that same sort of spirit so Mm -hmm. you know i I think anytime something is born out of like natural connection and and friendship and mutuality that it it has um it has the potential to be transformative uh whether it's for the person or, or or for the environment uh, and so, yeah, I mean, there's there's an endless list of I have, I have stories. A, I, have so so I, have, I have a funny one. <laughs> so we're we're yesterday is our first full day, so we're we're all, we're all kind of nervous and setting up, and we realized like at eight fifteen oh. that there's a lot to do before nine to get all, especially with the equipment to set it up and get things ready. And so we're busting our butt. I'm like, yeah, okay, finally. And and I go. I go to the bathroom and I tell PJ that I'm going to the bathroom, so he may not want to listen to his mic. Yeah. Um, and then for some reason, Orcs tells me every time he goes to the bathroom. <laughs> I go to the bathroom, I come back, they're like, um, <clears throat> we've lost power. <laughs> it's literally, the conference is, is starting, 9 a.m. 
You plugged in. The... I, plug, I plugged in a light and I saw a spark. <laughs> and then you know, everything, <laughs> the whole front, the front of the book went dark. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. So. But we, just, but we just rolled with it. We know it <laughs> and my funny story is that when I picked up Ben, I was expecting because I didn't know Ben. <laughs> I was expecting this kind of long dreadlock head, kind of young version of the dude from the Big Lebowski, you know, kind of hanging off the plane to film the thing. Quite the opposite. I'm sorry to disappoint. With that being said, I want to go ahead and ask Ben what his first impression was on that car ride back from the airport with you in the car. What was that like? What was your first impression of Matt? extremely friendly right off the bat uh, quick with a joke and the great thing was Matt made us uh, at least for me feel very at home right away very friendly very warm and uh, I didn't entirely know what I was getting myself into with all of this and uh, it's been great everybody's been extremely nice and this isn't my first time in Australia so I did kind of expect that I had a, a great pass with meeting people from Australia everybody seems to be very friendly and uh, we've been having an excellent time. How did you get involved? Um, I, I was involved with making Healing Voices with PJ and Oryx. I'm a motion graphics uh, and motion graphics artist and animator. So I did uh, all of our moving images on screen, screen in our film. And um, PJ had brought up that. And by the way, can I just interrupt for a second? He does work on some pretty major stuff in, in New York. Um, and so we're really blessed to have him on our team. He's like, he's the man. Like, Thanks, yeah. guys. <laughs> um, so there was an opportunity to come here and be a part of this. And uh, I've obviously been in the South Pacific before and didn't know when my next opportunity to come here would pop up. And this was just, it seemed like something I couldn't pass up, whatever it ended up being. Um, and so I jumped on board and it's been a great experience, but I live in New York city and I spend pretty much all day avoiding eye contact with people. <laughs> so this is an entirely different situation for me and it, it's very, I, I woke up, uh, yesterday at 6am on my own volition, which probably happened 20 years. So uh, there's something about this space that is, uh, very transformative and, uh, I feel it's, it's very serene. It's, it gets me away from the craziness and the rat race a lot of these two. So uh, this has just been a great experience so far. I'm extremely glad I got to be a part of it. So and, this, and, and this guy, fresh from claiming his first Oscar in February. <laughs> yeah. I mean, okay. That's true, isn't it? Not yet. That's February. That's a goal. One of the things we're doing, Steve, in, in, yeah. in, you know, one of, the, one of the hats that Ben and I are wearing this week is you know, we're, we're here shooting. Uh, and because we're gonna we're gonna produce a documentary about the experience of this week that tell you know that, that, that talks about the humane clinic and the work that Matt and Steph are doing that tells a bit of the backstory of how this emerged out of healing voices and that also sort of creates a, a document let's say of um, of what reawaken is in terms of uh, something that's formatted and and, and put together uh, very differently than most conferences that people are accustomed to attending so we we, we think this is just pretty hip uh, and so documenting it is part of the journey. And so we'll have a, a, a pretty badass little short film to, to release at some point in the next couple of months that really reflects um, all these things that each of us are articulating here.
Yeah. I, I just wanted to say that we, this, this started out as a dream, um, I think between the four of us. And, you know, with, with everything that is, that we put together in terms of what we wanted us to be in ter terms of primarily connecting. And, and it's so beautiful to see it happening. Then mm -hmm. people like loving this experience. And, and, and one of the things that we hope will come out of this is we want to share this model. Mm -hmm. we, we, we don't want to say this is it, you know, um, or we have to be the ones to organize something like this, mm -hmm. that we want to see can events happen around the world, whether that's locally, whether it's Reawaken USA, Reawaken North Carolina, um, Reawaken Melbourne. It could be one day event, could be the week long events, but we've, we found like, we, we feel like we've, we've, we've really tapped into something here um, that, that could have a life. I know Matt told me the story uh, previously, but go ahead and tell me again, how did all of you guys connect to actually be a part of this together. Go for it. Yeah, you chip in. I mean, I mean, if we go back to the origin, you know, uh, we saw on social media that Healing Voices was going to be released for a global kind of, uh, what do you call it? A, a grassroots global release. Yeah. And, and this is back in early 2016. April 2016, yeah. wasn't it? And, um, you know, Steph and myself and a few others were doing slightly different things, but we were kind of dreaming of these sort of things. And we saw it and we put it on in a small church hall, expected maybe 30 to 60 people to turn up and um, somewhere up to 150 turned up. And it was amazing, Steve. We had a feature film with not enough chairs. So people stood for an hour and a half to watch this film. You know, think about, you've got to be pretty committed. You've got to be pretty gripped by something to stand for an hour and a half watching because the moment boredom sets in, oh, wow. But, um, so, you know, and so then that night, I think there was a conversation between us about, about the festival. I don't know, but there was a conversation. Let's do this on a bigger scale. So we got a theatre with 500 seats. We got a young woman who is an actress who does a play around her voices. We had a guy I was working with who was previously labelled as having schizophrenia who teaches dances, he choreographed and designed a whole new dance about the experience of mental distress. And that was on, we had an art show. And then we went to Adelaide, which is an international music festival. And we were the only mental health stall, all based on the story of bringing conversation about what do we actually mean in our community when we say mental illness? You know, what, what are we actually talking about? How do we change that conversation? Because it doesn't make any sense to most people. You know, in reality, it makes sense to people who love the DSM. Um, but that's a small minority. And, um, and, and so then we kind of, we've been using the film maybe a dozen times in Adelaide. We've used it in Sydney. Um, yeah, and, and the model of showing the film in community conversation. And me and Steph have done that in Northwest Australia, up in the Kimberleys. And, and then, so then last year we were talking and I think you guys said, how do we take the next step? And, you know, could it be that we come to Australia or something? And I think... I, I remember, can I just mm. say, I remember this conversation where Matt kind of said, PJ and Oryx have kind of approached us to see if we want to do something with the next film, the recovering addiction. Is there yeah. some way we can kind of build on what we've been doing with healing addictions? And healing I'm just voices. like... Mm. What? Healing voices. Healing voices, sorry. <laughs> um, and um, I remember just this moment of kind of going, what? Like, 
they obviously don't know who we are, Matt. <laughs> we just do a couple of therapists. <laughs> <laughs> then, so we sat down and we had this conversation on Skype with them and um, we were just like, we are so in. And then, we, yeah, we just got off the phone and we were, we were at the time pretty naive but also kind of just going, why are they approaching us? And, um, yeah, and I think they've really mentored us over this period of time. You know, we've met fortnightly for the last nine months um, at you know crazy hours of the days and nights trying to negotiate the time differences and, and things um, and I think that why would you, why did you guys approach us well Oryx and I have been you know so we, we had we had a good run with healing voices where we, you know the, the initial global release we were in 130 communities in eight, in eight, in eight countries um, around like a two-week period when the movie first came out so, and these are all screenings like the one that Matt described where they were community they were put on by local organizers communities coming together to watch a film and then have uh, often sometimes some difficult and challenging conversations. So to us, you know, we made a social action film and that, that was the action. Um, and so from that, from that release, then we proceeded to continue screening for well over a year, uh, you know, here, there. And we did a sort of a, a similar thing with a home video release about a year later in the spring of 2017. Uh, and so the movie just has, you know, it screened thousands, thousands of times by this point. Um, and, you know, in countless venues and countless countries uh, all over the world. And, uh, you know, Oryx and I had been uh, having conversations around me, like, what's next? You know, how do we, how do we sort of materialize this into like the next thing? And, 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 and there, those are two things. For me, it became, you know, about, about making the next movie, right? It became about making the next related film uh, as a way to sort of build upon the success of this, but also as a way to replicate that model of, creating an independent production and releasing it to an audience that puts it to, that puts it to use the way that, that it's intended. But also, how do, we, how do we keep healing voices relevant in ways that aren't just these community screenings? So we have been talking and talking about doing a conference. We had talked about doing something in New York. We had talked yeah. about doing something in Boston. And, and, and this, is, you know, this is a big undertaking. Um, and you know, we, were, we were sort of enchanted with the narrative of what happened here in South Australia. It's like the best example of how the film took on a life of its own beyond what we could have envisioned, you know? So the way that Matt and, and Steph and-, and uh, The whole community. The whole community, Many Voices Collective and yeah. Humane Clinic had really just ran with this thing was like, it was just a great example of what we hoped was possible. Uh, and so just, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and by that point we had really established a connection. And Oryx was over here about a year ago. Uh, and so, you know, got to meet Matt and Stephanie in person and, and really sort of you know, solidify that relationship in the flesh. And, uh, and just so it just worked very organically um, that, you know, that next step for us involved sort of like uh, a context where Healing Voices was doing what it was intended to. And so, you know, that, that combination of, um, of sort of our, our intent and, you know, and, and a fertile earth like this really just made for um, what evolved into reawaken. So, you know, going back six or eight months, you know, we're talking like, what, what is this thing? What do we call this thing? What is our intention around this thing? And, and, and we wanted it to be in the spirit of healing voices and the spirit, spirit of the work you're doing here. It's not just your run of the mill sort of conference, you know, where people are going wall to wall from keynote to workshop to lunch to keynote to workshop to and so many choices and, and so many choices. And, you know, and, and, and they're for their CEUs or their CMEs so they can check off yeah. some, Sort of professional, uh, uh, some box on a professional checklist and, and, the, and the seasonality of their work. So we just wanted to make sure that uh, it had the spirit of what um, 
of the work that we're trying to do in the world. And, and, I, and I want to say, you know, when I hear you talk, I feel a bit emotional because I think really what we created was we allowed ourselves to create what was happening between the four of us and gone, you know, how do you trust someone on the other side of the world when you're investing financially in something? You don't really know each other. We've all been burnt in life in different ways. You know, we all come with our stories. And here we are, we come together. And, you know, we have, at this conference, we have home groups in the morning and the afternoon. And it's a distinct separation from traditional conferences in this back-to-back where the program's pretty empty, really. You know, there's a keynote, which is a short presentation followed by a workshop. We have two workshops and then we have a home group and you get into your group of 10 or eight people and you spend half an hour to reflect on what you've heard today, you know, this morning. Then you have a long lunch, you come back to keynote workshop, two workshops. Tea breaks in between. Tea breaks in between, really nice scones. 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 And jam and cream, which is really important. American scones are different. Yeah, no, these are nice scones. These are more like the motherland scones. These are good scones. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, and so we've kind of built on what's happened between the four of us. And then, you know, what it's done is, you know, Ben arrives and I feel like I've, I feel like I've been online with Ben for the last eight months, but I've only met Ben this week. You know, and you kind of go, well, how do you, you know, that's the environment we're trying to create. And, and yesterday, Oryx did his first keynote, the first presentation, and he invited people to come into connection and gave them an invitation. She talked about what we were doing. And it was this, you know, just... Me and Oryx were just, I was like, hey, what well on Oryx, that was brilliant, you know, and he set this task and we turn around and there's just a room yeah. full of people who have not met each other before, just deeply connect. Or walking the around in the flower yeah. beds in the garden, walking around, talking. <sighs> so powerful. Crying. Doing yoga, holding hands, yeah. Steph, so Steph, Steph, always says, Steph always says, you know, as trainers, you want to get people crying, you know, you know. <laughs> we had that. <laughs> Day one, first session. And the other thing, there's a couple of things that struck me. You know, we're in here, we're the main organizers of a conference. Morning of day two, we're in the hour leading up to the conference starting. Here's the keynote. I'm the keynote in the next 20 minutes. So we should all be pretty overwhelmed. And we've got this beautiful bunch of volunteers who've supported this journey. They're out there running the show. Yeah. You know, and I, this is the first time I thought about it, you know, and that, that speaks to relationship for me. And, you know, in terms of money for this thing, me and Steph primarily underwrote the, the, the cost, but, you know, none of us are getting paid well here. Broadly speaking, we, we, we've taken expenses. You know, Ben's literally been given a plane ticket and he's coming given a week to a bunch of people he doesn't know to be part of something and to, to support something. And, and I think that's... It's, it's a bit like your show, Steve. You know, you, you do this because you believe, because you're passionate, because you, it's important. And I think that's an important message as well, mm. you know. Not to well, say we shouldn't be remunerated, but to say, look what happens when we really engage in our journeys. Mm. And, yeah. yeah, sorry, that was all a bit impassioned, wasn't it? Yeah. You're, you're touching my heart. That's the whole point, right? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It sounds like it sounds like you're all really like coming together and truly living those core values that are stated in the logo connection, compassion and meaningful action. Everybody that's involved from the organizers to the participants are really displaying those core values right. together. Right. And I'm a big believer in that. Like it really upsets me when there's leaders who are not um, walking the talk. 
they can talk good values, but then they're they're dismissive of people, or they're rude to people, or they're um, they're not they're not doing it. And so, yeah, it's really important that we do it, and we I think we've done it the whole way through, and it hasn't always been easy. I know it's been easier for us because they've been on the ground, but um, all all the hard spots have been talked about, worked through, and there may be more this week that happened. But yeah, we we had a moment, didn't we, about a month ago? And it, you know, we just we, there was something came up. And it was this really awkward moment, or it could have been an awkward moment, but because we built this space of safety, we could just speak up. You know, I, I suppose an example would be Steve. You know, we, we, you know, the, you said to me when when we spoke the first time, oh, we should do this regularly. And I just flicked you an email ten days ago and said, oh, can we do live from the conference? You know, and you're just like, yeah, let's do it. You know, and that that's the spirit. You know, and I, I wish I wish you were in here with us. You know, yeah. because I feel like wow, here's another guy who's really good so just gonna do it you know just gonna get on anytime somebody leads an email off by hey this may be a crazy idea but i sign up immediately <laughs> that's just how <laughs> that's just how i roll man <laughs> yeah sign me up i can't sign up fast enough so what's next man i know you guys are totally you're running out of time right you got to go in a couple minutes yeah what's, what's next what's next for what's next for reawaken well, then we want to talk about recovering addiction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're in the midst of making the next documentary. Um, so, you know, the, we're, we're producing a social action film about addiction, which is obviously a pretty big issue in, in, in the States as well as uh, everywhere else. Um, and so, you know, in terms of our, our work, that's, you know, we're, we're shooting that film this year. We're going to have uh, a global release in the spring. So, you know, and we're able to, um, you know, sort of workshop. The film a little bit here tomorrow which is which is cool and just you know, sort of talk about some themes and see how they land with people um so so that's exciting and you know we're, we're definitely like with both feet into the next thing on, on the production side of what we do um and with in terms of reawaken we'll see you know there's all sorts of possibilities that could come out of um of these relationships and this work and this model yeah and i mean just some of the practicals we've been talking with some guys from new zealand so they I'm pretty confident we'll be doing a 2020 um, Reawaken New Zealand in Auckland. Um, we're going to be in Canberra in the Capital Territory of Australia in World Mental Health Month or week or whatever it is, um, doing a one-day Reawaken. So some of the plans that we're going, we take what we've learned here and we go to local communities. And, you know, I'm really keen that we have speakers from local communities, you know, so who are the people championing stuff there? We just bring a Reawaken banner and, you know, the energy and then, support people in their communities. Um, I mean, for me and Steph, one of the big, big dreams, and I think this contributes to it, is that we will have a non-medicated, non-diagnostic community for people both in crisis and people wanting to spend longer time. And I know that sits with what you guys are doing in NC Raw, doesn't it? Absolutely. Build this community. And I, I want to acknowledge that because I, that's, you know, just creates that connection between you and us, right? You know, we're, we're striving for the same things. Absolutely. So that those are some of the. And for me, you know, like yesterday we had this gorgeous workshop where we kind of um, Matt and I did a workshop called "Doing It Anyway." We wanted to call it "Just Do It." We thought might, might get sued by Nike, so um, <laughs> we did. Um, but we kind of held this space about talking about how do, how do we overcome the obstacles? How do we do the things that are part of our dreams and passions when it seems insurmountable? What 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 resources do we have available to kind of overcome those things? And so we, um, what are we doing? 
I'm making, I, I don't want to tell the camera, but I'm just making a tick, Steve, I thought, I presume the Nike executives watch this show. <laughs> of course, yeah, yes. The reawaken for Nike is to really embrace the common humanity. Right. And there's their tick, yeah. and then to sponsor reawaken events Nike. around the world. Yes. There you go. Yes, and so at the end of this kind of talking about how we might do this, we got into groups and people talked about what their dreams are and what their obstacles you know, the, the things that are difficult and what resources they have to overcome those. And then we wrote up on the board, once everyone kind of discussed in groups and sort of shared and found ways to sort of support each other, we brought people together and we had this board absolutely full of things that people are going to do. And I was just blown away. I shouldn't have been. I should not have been surprised at yeah. all, actually. Yeah. But I just felt like, A, people are either doing it. Some of the people talk about what they're already doing, which is incredible talked about things that they're dreaming of that they're going to do and how they're going to kind of bring communities together to make that happen. And they just got it. And I feel like, you know, we're quite, quite blessed because the people here, they've been right for this, haven't they? They're yeah. just really yeah, already yeah. in the space. And can I just say in the spirit of that, I just want to put out there, Reawaken USA 2020. And we're we're kind of going into the we're we're, we're kind of we're, we're going into the nose oh there's all these reasons why we shouldn't do something but it could even be a day it could be a reawakened day we could have a reawakened day 2020 north carolina i think rural north carolina would actually be a beautiful oh, place God, to I do want it to come there man. Uh, even if it's one day but what, what we need is people on the ground to help us out because you you had an amazing team we need we need people who are interested in this if you are, please contact us. We need organizers on the ground, but that's how these things happen. You have a dream first, and then you get the people, the resources together, and you make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. If anybody heard those words and wants to research, re reawaken further, how do they connect with you guys? Website, Instagram, Twitter, What's how do they find you? Yeah, we, easiest is www.reawakenaustralia.com.au. You can click us an email through the website. Or we are Reawaken A on Twitter and we're Facebook forward slash Reawaken Australia. And uh, yeah, we just love to hear. And the, the Hearing Voices movie, where can our audience find that? Uh, HealingVoicesMovie.com. Perfect. Or you can just Google Healing Voices, it'll come, it'll come right up. Healing it's Voices. Totally Boom. <laughs> 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 yeah, SEO, baby. Well, yeah. thank you guys. Into the next room here. So, Steve, uh, we're going to keep you live, and, and you're going to uh, and stream Matt's keynote. Perfect. Yep. Can I just say one more thing, Steve? Two more things. One is thank you again to you. And like, I have an uncomfortable relationship with capitalism, but um, I want to. I, I do genuinely want to acknowledge United Communities as our primary principal sponsor. They sponsored us with a lot of dollars, which was just a great. It just meant it happened. And it also meant that we could offer a lot of a lot of free and low-cost places we probably have i don't know close to 50 percent low-cost places yeah so you know it's made it accessible people and there's a range of other sponsors as well but uh you really uniting communities and united guess i came up with the the underpinnings and then we could do it so just want to acknowledge that. Mm. Yeah. all right we'll see you in the room Absolutely. i'm gonna go get my looking forward to it good luck orcs <laughs> thanks, thanks man <laughs> love, love you guys man love you guys thank you thank you Thank you for listening to this portion of the podcast. We will now give you the keynote speech from Matt Ball.
to fast track it to this morning quite quickly. In fact, we're going to do the announcements after the, uh, the keynote for a very good reason. And we've got, um, got Matt delivering our, our keynote this morning, and I don't think he needs too much of an introduction. Although I will say the term dissociocotic is one of Matt's favourite terms, so much so that he, I think he went to a show at some point and they had cats where you could get words written on them. So his daughter now walks around with a cat that says dissociocotic, so, which is very cool. I really wanted it this morning, but couldn't get it. Um, this morning, Matt, Stephanie, PJ, Eric, have already been online. Um, they've been a part of a um, podcast um, from the States um, called NC Raw or North Carolina Recovery Always. And um, if you haven't been on there, jump on there. And the topic for this week is Reawaken Australia. So it's Reawaken Australia in the US. Um, and the great news is that we're now going to continue that on. And Matt's keynote is going to be a part of that same podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So we do have Twitter. By the way, I set up my Twitter account yesterday. I won't say that I during the keynote. But, um, but Twitter, at ReawakenA, or hashtag Reawaken Australia. You post something on there. Um, there's some great stuff there. It's because I posted three things yesterday. But, um, but there are also a number on there, So or on the Facebook page. So without further ado, um, Thanks again to our, our sponsors, and especially our principal sponsor, Uniting Communities. Um, I'm gonna hand over to Matt to, um, to deliver his keynote. Um, you know, I just wanna start, uh, as we did yesterday, and acknowledge that we're meeting on the land of the Ghana people, present, uh, and um, yeah, respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people represented here today. And, First Nation people around the world. Uh, much of what I'm going to talk about is um, very unnew, so uh, it's been here a long time. Um, I have the Bible, which will be one of my props today. <laughs> I'm looking forward to quoting, quoting from the DSM. I can't believe this is happening in my life. Um, so yeah, I'm going to talk about the sociocratic. It is my probably my favourite term, uh, and I'm going to finish with introducing another new word to the lexicon. It's very exciting for me. Um, but yeah, so I, I want to talk about the sociocratic, but I, I want to put it in the context of where it came from, which is thinking about the non-psychosis that we share. So uh, all the time we use the language of labels and uh, creation of uh, I don't know somebody else's narrative over my experience. Uh, we, we are the one another. We become one thing and they become another. Um, and, and so often we don't give people a chance or an opportunity to move away from that othering. And we've been talking about this. Um, so seeing the non-psychosis we share is the kind of core of that. You know, that in my view, I would probably extend to the point that I, I don't think psychosis exists really um, other than a word that we've made up. Um, and that's really not denying any suffering or distress or anything that anybody else wants but it's just saying well how do we how do we stay in what really is and i think that's through seeing a shared non-psychosis so i'm just going to start by setting the scene for where i am and i'm thinking that the interconnected that occurs through the process of growth within a loving non-goal-orientated relationship leads to a negation of the need for an altered state to exist uh, to defend the threat of annihilation and existing. so so when we genuinely come into interconnectedness, and, and that's based in a loving, 
non goal orientated process between two people, then those extreme states don't need to be. This is an intentionally evocative uh, speech with the hope that people will agree or disagree. I don't really mind, it's about finding what works for you. And in, and in this, you can then see that the wounded becomes the healer, which is what Oryx was talking about yesterday. Um, and that provides a bridge for the helper. And, and one, of my, one of my biggest dreams and hopes, I suppose, is that one day we will look at people who have extreme states and be grateful because we will actually understand more about ourselves and one another through the fact that some people have had to or chosen to or wanted to or suffered with those extreme states. And then that really brings us into a space of unity. That those of us like myself who had these extreme distressing processes have, have gone beyond the suffering to find meaning in the, in the actual experience. And in that, the helper then, in a non-psychotic state, can resist the attempt to change the legitimate reality of the person who is experiencing such a state. So that's the gift that we get, in my view, from, from the wounded person who, who themselves is actually potentially a wound. So in that context, then I want to just discuss, and we're going to do, it's not going to be a random talk, which is probably a good thing, we're doing exercise, but um, I want to think about the principles that I've kind of developed in my mind and invite you to think of what might work for you or might not work for you. But when we're working with trauma and psychosis, and I, you know, throughout this talk, if trauma is not your thing, you don't need it to be about trauma. Uh, if if just, just noticing that there's a space of disconnection in your life and that's enough that it's created distress, discomfort, extreme state, whatever. That's a legitimate thing as well. And I think there's a real risk when we talk about trauma and psychosis that everybody has to experience what everybody else thinks is trauma. So it's just an additional label that we layer on. So if you haven't experienced trauma, how can you experience the psychosis that Matt's talking about? Well, that, that's not what I'm saying. So really, really allowing people to sit in, in what is theirs, their narrative, and, and noticing where that might create a process in our sort of perceptual reality that's different to somebody else. So what are the principles? There's something about spirituality and culture. And um, I used to put this at the end, and then I, I've kind of been musing on this. And I think that if we, if we start in a place of understanding spirituality and culture, whatever that is for a person, then, you know, it inherently takes us to a place of how that person defines their reality, who they are, what they are, how they experience, how they're connected to this wonderful ground that we stand for guys that we look at or whatever you know it's not about i'm a christian i'm a buddhist etc etc it's about the essence of us you know so this is a distinct principle and i think if you're not going to embrace that then perhaps don't work in these spaces um it's up to you of course um i'm really keen on the work of lauren mosher and the phrase being with not doing two is an important phrase but, but um you know the story that i really love about the work of lauren mosher was when the person sleep in Soteria House and so someone sat in the bed and held their hand. I mean we don't need lorazepam when we can hold hands. It's an important principle, you know, it, it feels beautiful. If you want to hold someone's hand now, if it's safe for you, it actually feels really nice. So you might want to try that and it feels good. Um, Joyce Travelby is a mental health nursing theorist and I was telling Joe yesterday I was going to start speaking out about mental health nurses. I don't know if there's any in the room but you know, mental health nursing at its origin is very, very similar to peer work principles and values. If you look at the early theorists, you look at Gertrude Schwing uh, in the 1940s and 50s, it was said that she prepared people for the psychiatrists to do their wonderful work. But actually, when you read about it, what she did, she sat with people who were said to be catatonic and not able to engage, and they engaged with them. You know, through her sitting there, through being with someone. And, and, and um, Joyce Trappi sat on and said, 
talked about the idea that if you're gonna, if you're gonna work with someone as a mental health nurse who's suffering and in distress, then the first six months are about finding a way that two human beings can just spend time together. Just be humans in six months. And we talk about rapport in the mental state examination as some sort of functional process. It's, it's utter nonsense. And mental health nursing at its core has those values. So it's a, a really, as a mental health nurse, it's important for me to hold on to that. And I see a lot of mental health nursing about being the opposite, which is disconnection, sticking needles in, doing tasks. If you're a mental health nurse, then you can let go of those things. Just read a bit of travel. Um, seeing the non-psychosis we share, you know, and I'll talk a bit more about that, but, it, but it's about finding the coexisting same experience. Creativeness and open, creativity and openness, if you're going to work in these places, is vital because it will remind you to connect to the other principles. Be available to what's happening. You know, that, that's about moving me out of the way. It's what Oryx was saying about leaving my hat at the door. It's about coming into my heart, not in my head. I mean, we use our heads, that's okay. But, but what's, what's it like if we sit in our hearts together? It's, it's very beautiful. And, and, it, and it allows that creativity to become, and that sits in the empathy and compassion space. And then, you know, what, what we've found at the Humane Clinic to be really useful is the tolerance of uncertainty, you know, keeping that at the forefront of our mind. If you're going to work with someone who's in a state and you're accepting their state as different to something you're ever going to experience, then if you really want to be with them because of the wider narratives of our society and community, you're going to have to tolerate uncertainty. You know, and, and one of the things I see over and over in mental health services, particularly with people who are said to be psychotic, is that, that they became agitated or they became aggressive or they, you know, so it turns out that standing up when you've got a lot of energy in your body mean, might mean that you're being aggressive and more psychotic. But, you know, I can model that for you. I've got quite a lot of energy in my body. You know. <laughs> Maybe not that threatening. Unfortunately, I've experienced a couple of times in the community that someone wore makeup one night and they were probably married. Absolutely. <laughs> makeup and mania is intrinsically linked, absolutely. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, uh, but only in Victoria. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, but we've got Vimeo here, so that's, they're going to rectify that. That on your agenda yeah. election. Uh, makeup does not mean. Yeah, yeah, we'll take off the makeup, or or if we want to be more adventurous, take off the makeup. Yeah, um, exactly. You know, with my favourite thing on death of psychiatry, which is a Facebook page about bears eating feet and other <laughs> unusual experiences uh, for psychosis, uh, for psych uh, schizophrenia. Um, my favourite one on there was we did a talk one day, and someone was very excited to talk to us and challenge some of our ideas. And the challenge that he wanted to give us was that he saw someone come off with Motrogene, which is a, one of the disastrous drugs we often hand out. Um, and he said, and when we took this woman off the, the Motrogene, she touched the psychotic membrane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this wasn't where this, this was not where this talk was going. So seriously, I want to get back to seeing the non-psychosis. There's some principles, alongside the kind of principles of practice, there's a kind of theoretical underpinning, uh, shamelessly promoting my own theory and work. But, um, you know, the right understanding, it comes from a Buddhist philosophy uh, in my mind, and, and it's really important to me as a person who accepts some of the teachings. So right understanding according to Long Paul's Tomato is, is a state of accepting the reality of what is, understanding without intention to change. So we, we don't need to change, we need to be with what is. Without a goal and with the acceptance that the moment will, by the law of nature, pass. I will come and it will go. 
and it may come again, and it may go again, it may come again, it may go again. But if we can, you know, our responsibility is to sit with that, that uncertainty, that difficulty. You know, because otherwise we start doing things to people, and there's your God. Um, Oryx and I were talking at the weekend about, um, Stephanie and I have gone into private practice, and, and, you know, not one person, despite the vehement desire for planning, and, uh, and uh, what's it called, care plans in public mental health and, and other services. It's an absolute passion for it. No one's ever asked me for a care plan outside of the system, ever. Now, I'm happy to plan with people, and no one's ever asked me for that. But, you know, if you go and sit in a public mental health service, it's a three-monthly review of that plan. Beautiful. And you get so, kicked out if you don't stick to your plan. Well, if you don't stick to your plan, you're not really behaving in the appropriate way, are you? You're not to recovery. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> Yes. So, so, um, so then we can start asking who are the goals for. You know, it's a very important point. You know, if I set a goal for someone, then that's my goal. It's the same as the label that I give. It's my label. Um, so we really need to be mindful. If you want to do goals with people, how do we make sure that those goals are a something that person wants to do, and b goals that that person has? And I think, you know, over the last few years, it's been quite radical in saying this in, in a public mental health system. But, you know, standing here right now, it doesn't feel very radical. Um, so that's quite nice. And then the coexisting same experience is the kind of other part of the non-psychosis theory that I'm sort of playing with. And, and it's about the coexisting same experience is about saying, I can sit in my reality that's different to your reality, but we can both consciously be aware of the difference. That's okay. And we can sit in it. And someone said to me yesterday, oh, there's this chap we both know. And, and what do you, um, you know, do you understand what he says to you? Do you understand? I mean, I know you understand the words, but do you know what he's trying to articulate? And, I, and, I, and where we got to is that the last time I met with this chap, I sat 40 minutes without speaking, and he just talked. And it, she, his feedback was that I'm a good listener. You know, so, so if I'd had a goal, then I'd have been needing to work out what it was he was saying. But if, you know, what he wanted was for me to be present in that moment. Now, I didn't share his experiences of some of the... Um, technological processes that the government do to you. That's not my reality. And I feel quite free of that stuff. I was able to tell him that. He was able to tell me about it. And we shared, we coexisted without the need to change one another's states, which just feels quite important to me. And in that, that's when we get to non-psychosis. Neither of us are psychotic. We just have a unique experience. And that's, it's not new. You know, you all have heard it in different ways, but this is my way of thinking. So I'm going to come on to my explanatory framework and then I'll wrap it up, so that's good. Um, I'm not proposing a new label. It's really important, but, it, but one of the gifts, and I'm not asking people in extreme states to help others, um, but the byproduct of people inviting you to walk with them in their extreme states as the helper and supporter, you, you do get to walk. You know, and we touched yesterday on the dangers of this and that, but, but I'm talking about in the moment, person giving me guidance. I'm not talking about me making something better or something right for somebody else. And that's an incredible gift in my life when I have that opportunity. So I'm just hold in mind, I'm not asking you to take on yet another label of this miserable system, but um, I do want you to contemplate that, that, that my thing about labels is that when I tell you you have a disorder, it's my label that I've been on. It's not your label to take on. You can choose. Now, that's not how our system works, but that's where I want us to system to get. You know, it's okay for a psychiatrist to tell me I have narcissistic personality disorder or schizophrenia or depression or psychotic depression or drug-induced depression. Those are five of them. 
Um, you know, but they're the labels of somebody who's studied a lot about this book. This book in the introduction tells you it doesn't stand up legally. So you read a DSM, go and get a DSM. It says in there, in the forward, it doesn't stand up legally. So those labels belong to someone else. So moving on to the socioequatic, I just want to quote the wonderful Noel Hunter. If you don't know of Noel Hunter and trauma psychosis and dissociation, it's just a beautifully written book. And one, the thing I love about Noel Hunter's book on this is that having spoken with Noel and read her other writings, she, she writes as she speaks, so it makes it accessible. You know, it's not some academic tone you can't kind of connect to. You can feel like she's in the room in her lovely, uh, drooling American accent, and you can read it with her in your head. It's a bit psychotic, but it, but it works. So she says, I do not believe it is possible to separate psychosis and dissociation. To me, this is like attempting to separate a headache and a fever when I have the flu. Where does the headache begin and the fever end? And should I focus on treating my headache, fever, or maybe the virus that infected me and is creating an interconnected process of events in my body? While psychosis and dissociation are not the same thing, I believe that one does not have psychosis without dissociation or dissociation without psychosis. And here's the thing. Often, the difference simply boils down to who can frame things the way the professional wants to hear or agrees with. And for any of us that have touched the system here, we probably know what she's talking about. So my explanatory model model label is about is called dissociocotic. I have a hat with it on that my daughter wears. Um, one of the things I want to propose, I used to think it was an individual thing, but actually it's a systemic thing as well. So you can very easily see when the system is in a systemic state of dissociocotic. It can't quite stay in its consciousness of its responsibility and process. So it goes into this kind of awkward, bizarre language um, where people be put in double binds. So putting someone in a double bind would be a systemic form of dissociocotic. Um, and we wouldn't do it if we were consciously doing it and realised what we were doing. So we've lost primary awareness as a systemic approach when we create double binds for people. So if you're not sure what a double bind is, if you look at the mental state examination, and we, we suggest whether people have insight or not. Now we take an account of someone's life, and then as a wonderfully skilled professional, I look at things and I say, has this person got insight into whether they are connected to what I make of their reality? It's a double bind, because if they agree with me, then they're mad, because I think they're mad. If they don't agree with me, they're more mad, because they don't agree with me, and I'm really perfect. So, so, and at that point, the system is playing games. So dissociocotic experience of animation and giving life. So it's an active process, and I'll explain why this is difficult to understand. To being a variance of companionship to ourselves. So we've separated ourselves off from ourselves in order for the survival of self in relationship to interpersonal threat from the other. So we've got this incredibly skillful mind and soul and body that can separate itself off when the threat from another person is too much and we can be separated away from that. But what we think of then Normally, is dissociation is this kind of flattening out, disappearing, not being present. But that's not, that's not the case. And my hypothesis is, is that psychosis is actually what Stephanie referred to when, we, when I was making up this word, um, this busy, active dissociation. This is the problem. So we think of dissociation as shutting down, freezing, uh, not being present like that. But actually, we, we know now in dissociative states, people's frontal lobes are very able to do a, a multitude of tasks. So that what I'm suggesting is that psychosis is just an expression overtly of this. Uh, and it creates awkwardness for us because our perception is that people should be shutting down when actually becoming animated. Um, 
the, 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 the important part of this is that when we recognize this and we can shift our thinking away from, oh, here's an ill person who's psychotic and overwhelmed, dangerous, scary, whatever, and we can say, oh, this is a person who primarily has got an experience of being separated because in the here and now I feel threatened, then we can attune to what happened in that relationship, that environment, that space, and create an environment where people can come back into connection and fits well with your life. Um, just, I love this. I just really love this. Everybody can see the faces. Everybody can see the bars. Faces, bars, faces, bars. If you think you can hold them together at the same time, really concentrate on it. It's not really possible. You'll just flick between them. So my, my theoretical concept is, is that the reason why we can't understand uh, psychosis is a more of a dissociative experience because you've just got a perceptual framework that it's an illness. And they're so similarly related. I just wanted to add to that that um, they've studied this in, in people that are that are going through psychosis. Those of us that are tricked by those perception tricks that you can do, yeah. they see they can see right through those tricks. Yeah. So there's yeah. yeah, and so the people are healers in their teachings. Yeah, and this is my keynote, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I just I really love what you said. And it resonates, but I'm just curious why have the court systems got onto this? Um, shall I go into that now? <laughs> the insanity plea is about the diagnostic framework. If we had an insanity plea, we shouldn't call it an insanity plea, but if we had an insanity plea of understanding of the mechanism of threat response, it would have more legitimacy than the mechanism of disease. Or maybe, more, more, maybe I should um, clarify family courts. Same principle. I'm, I'm at risk of. I'm at risk, so I, be, I look to the others that I behave this way, but oh, because it's because you haven't got a disorder, you're just behaving badly. If you had schizophrenia, you might forgive me. We can talk about it more this afternoon. It's a really valid point. Thank you for raising it. So I just want to tie it into a theory, so it's not just Matt Paul's um, formerly psychotic uh, theories. Um, so where I'm suggesting here is that if you look at polyvagal theory, where we have social engagement as the primary mechanism of creating safety, and if that doesn't work, we go into mobilization and then into immobilization. What I'm suggesting in this theory is that the social engagement encounter in the so-called so psychotic state, people just flip into this busy active dissociation project against the, the, the threat response. So it's the dissociative response in this case. Later. So what does it look like in reality? Once upon a time, we were humans and animals. We did very primal things. There was an animal that's bigger than the human. The animal runs after its prey. I do this in an intentionally monotone voice. The animal runs after its prey. The person tries to fight it. It doesn't work. The person tries to run away. It doesn't work. The person lies flat. And because of the innate response to the animal, it runs past because it wants to chase and get down its prey. Hence, we survive in that three sort of state. Then we grew a frontal lobe and it started working more effectively. And the threat changed. The threat is now from people, not animals. We try and fight people and our society doesn't generally accept them and allow that. So um, we, we give that up. We try and run away. You know, just a fact for you, if you get detained in South Australia in, in a democratic society that we live in, we've now, under the new Mental Health Act tradition, you can be treated under your detention uh, criteria in another state. That's undemocratic. And, you know, also and we will we will reciprocate that to the undemocratic providers. Uh, so we try and run away. It doesn't work because of that. So if we lie flat, what happens? The animal would run past us, but it's no longer the animal. So humans have this 
desire and propensity to try and create better for somebody else. So if we lie flat, people come and do things to us. So what we've done is we've created this perceptual awareness that that's going to happen. And my hypothesis is that instead of lying flat, we now create these extreme realities and we express them. And for most people, if somebody is standing on the street shouting at voices that other people can't see, they go to the other side of the road and move around. And what it does is if we go back, it's the same thing as lying flat. But it's just an externalized version of that. And that's why we have problems with perception. What does it do? I mean, if we if, if we see what's happening between me and the other person, we can be attuning to what we've done that's been a threat to the other person or what the environment's done. And that's a real key for me because actually we can then bring that into the room with people and invite them to explore that with us or us to explore that with them so that we can consider whether we want to reverse what we've been doing that's created this need to separate off or whether we want to tolerate and see that we can tolerate and be skillful and powerful um, in various different ways. Um, so one of the principles here is that, uh, I'll skip to here because I'm running out of time. So if we respond to psychosis as dissociation, and I'm not saying you have to believe it's dissociation, but the theoret theoretical concept is more legitimate to think of it as dissociation in my view. So, when we're in this moment and someone, and I'll read an example in a minute, and someone appears to suddenly become more psychotic, your responsibility as a supporter might be to see what's just happened. It might be nuanced, it might be moment-based, it might be more broad, it might be the, the, the sort of the language you've used, it might be you crossed your leg, and that for some reason was, was enough to trigger someone into a response. Oh, where's the relationship now? Um, and then our job is to then not to go further towards them, to allow someone to come towards us when they're ready. So what we do as human beings, somebody's suffering and we want to make it better. Now in the therapy room, that's a bit like moving slightly towards them, going closer and closer. What I'm saying is stay where you are or even move back to where you were and invite them to tell you what it was like when I just did this. Oh, and when I do that, oh, that feels all right. Okay, so, so then it was me and it's not them. It's not them that's the problem. It's, it's the relationship that's, that's come and gone. We notice what the threat was, uh, and if we go towards them, rather than waiting for them to come to us, we're going to push people into liminality. And people in liminality become more creative, more ritualistic, and yes, more. So, so the further we go to try and correct what's happened in that moment, the more we're pushing people in that moment towards those extreme states, which we then decide we need to do something about. And so that's where the theory of non-psychosis comes in, that if we accept the legitimacy of a person's reality in this moment of interconnectedness, there was a threat or a vulnerability. What we're saying is that we acknowledge both of those positions, the two of us, if there's three of you in the room, the three of us, and we say that we are now in a coexisting same experience. We can move gently with one another to see where the safety comes and where the safety goes. And that's a very beautiful space to be in. And I, I, for me personally, it was a very beautiful space to find myself in when I was so psychotic. That actually, when people stopped paying attention to me being the problem and my, my expression being the problem, my problem didn't seem such a problem. And, and, you know, I haven't got time, but I learned this living in a community of so-called psychotic people that weren't getting better from the wonderful treatments. And um, we didn't talk about psychosis. We didn't talk about risk. We spent time in community. It's pretty simple. So I just want to read you through the sociocratic example. 30-year-old um, guy, Jack, 
Um, it's been hearing voices, a number of voices experiencing thought blocking, thought insertion as the language is for around seven years, and also quite a lot of paranoia and other unusual spiritual related experiences. The, the, the particular voice we were dialoguing with, and there was three of us in the room, we've been very pervasive, aggressive, and was content wise and nature wise, just not very nice. Um, I had my own ideas, he had his own ideas, the therapist had her own ideas, you know, but we talked about it, worked that through as a shared formulative space. And, and Jack had invited us to engage with his voices. We were probably in the 15th session of talking with voices. Um, and the session began on for a while. And, and, and what happened was, you know, there's intentional language here, it was functioning well, um, whatever that means. Um, and then, so then I said to him, I asked him if he might ask a question of this particular voice. And it was a voice that represented distinct emotional distress in his life. And I asked him to talk direct to the voice as, as had been the setup. And it was absolutely phenomenal. We've been engaged in two throws, three-way dialogue. And suddenly he starts going, <sighs> you know, and you could see the voice was getting louder in psychiatric language. He was thought blocked. He wasn't able to process. And so then the second facilitator asked him the same question and it just carried on. And then we noticed what was happening. We said, well, would you like, you don't have to answer that. That'd be cool. And we could, we could step back from there. And he steps back and he goes, oh yeah, thanks, yeah, I can't do that. You know, so, so what we'd seen then in psychiatric or psychosis perspective was an increase in psychotic phenomena in the moment. That's not how psychosis schizophrenia works as a biological concept. But that's what we'd seen, an increase in psychotic phenomena, including increase in voices, thought blocking, cognitive impairment. And he was acutely psychotic on chronic schizophrenia. You know, that's what we might say. That's the sort of language if you've never had the this pleasure of seeing this stuff. From a dissociocratic framework, what we might think is that the request by the facilitator inviting Jack to take on, take an action that was overtly challenging, led to the difficulty in processing the dilemma that represents the previous and current, emotion, current emotional distress and conflict. The facilitator had, through his action of invoking an emotional conflict, created a threat within the human-to-human -human encounter. And that resulted in what we then call the psychotic community. As we step back from that, came back into connection. This guy is not psychotic. So that's an example. Um, Can I just say that? So we came back into connection meeting. We completely started speaking to us and talking. Like yeah, yeah, it was like, a, it was like a, in this moment, in that moment, in this moment. And so it's not what we talk about as a, as a psychotic reality. So I'm just going to read you. I know I've gone over time, but I haven't explained this. I, it's out of place now, but with the labels, I just really want to mock something. Oh, I'm not allowed to move, sorry. I just want to mock something. Uh, schizoaffective disorder. Now, I'm not meaning to dismiss anybody's label that they want to own, right? But if you have schizoaffective disorder, it means that you have schizophrenia, that you have depression or elevated mood. Not but, wearing makeup. Not <laughs> wearing makeup. But if you have schizophrenia, you might have extreme moods of some form. It's absolute claptrap. And I just wanted to kind of bring it up and make it overt. <coughs> Recently, when I was having a discussion with a psychiatrist who said someone had a borderline personality disorder, um, and, I, and I said, oh, she doesn't have a borderline personality disorder. Oh, she has a schizoaffective disorder. And I said to him, well, schizoaffective disorder is made up by you and your friends. <laughs> <laughs> and he stopped talking to me in a slightly dissociative <laughs> <laughs> And then when he came out of that state, he went to his friends where he feels safe and told them Matt Ball has said his schizoaffective disorder doesn't exist. So we saw this wonderful dissociative disorder. 
So I want to give another example. This happened in a co-dependency unit in a hospital in Adelaide, and I've got Mick's permission to share this story, of course. It's going to be published soon. Mick was in an acute hospital as an involuntary consumer. Those of you that aren't from Australia, you've detained. I mean, placed in a secure ward, a psychiatrist, he expressed the voices were telling him to kill people in the ward, including the psychiatrist and the nurses. Mick verbalising the content of the voices to the psychiatrist led to his detention. Prior to this, Mick had been openly discussing his voices with the nurse that would later be invited back in to spend time with him after he was detained. The conversation included the same content, but had not raised alarm for the nurse to consider detaining Mick due to the nurse taking an acceptance and meaning-based approach to understanding the voice. During the conversation with the psychiatrist, he was with the psychiatrist, he was also making various threats, so I would say articulating his fears in the direction of other individuals who were residing or thought other people were going to harm. A nurse with an interest in spending time with psychiatrists as a way of allowing it to appear or not appear, as is the functional need of the individual, was invited to speak with Mick. As the process of the therapeutic encounter unfolded, Mick began to describe the phenomenon. As Mick articulated the range of voices, visions, and auras he was experiencing, he referred to the voice directing him to kill the nurse that was relating him. Mick was sitting in a relaxed posture on a comfortable chair and was facing directly to the nurse. The nurse was not experiencing any sense of threat, but instead was interested to understand more about the experience. The nurse articulated his sense of feeling safe, despite the voices giving direction to Mick. Two significant considerations were made by the nurse and explicitly explored by me. One, do you want to kill me? Do you personally want to kill me? He said no. What does it feel like to hear a voice saying that you should want to kill someone when you don't want to hurt that person? And in this context, it was particularly important because we knew each other for six minutes. Nick was clear in stating that he did not wish to hurt or intend to hurt to kill the nurse, despite hearing a voice expressing this view. He immediately became distressed and upset at the sadness that the nurse might think Mick would want to harm him. He began to weep. He expressed that he felt guilt and shame in hearing voices instructing him to hurt someone he cared about. He was demonstrating safety to It was a really, really powerful moment in the high dependency unit. The next thing that happened was I said to Mick, what do you want to happen now? And he said, can I have a hug? So we stood up and we hugged. And he cried, and he cried, and he cried. And we, we stood there while he cried as an unpsychotic person who'd just been detained for so-called psychosis. Gosh. Anyway, about six months later, Mick would say to me, you know that moment when we hugged and we cried? It was nothing happened. There was no voices. And this is what I'm talking about. When we come into connection, we create safety in the ability the other person to tell us what that feels like and how that needs to happen. As Oryx was telling us yesterday, then these extreme states might just not need to exist. Because we're talking about addiction and trauma, I'll wrap it up. Uh, I want to introduce a new word, dissociate addiction. It's a brand of reawakening. So I made this up this week after discussing it with PJ. Um, but, but in, in, all, in all seriousness, it's, it's a hypothesis, it's a way of describing and creating an explanation. But uh, Andrew Chitarski talks about the urge, the access of change. And, and I suppose I really value that in, in addiction. So there's, there's, there's this kind of space for change to occur and that, and that kind of surging, urging thing. 
But I suppose what, what I want to say is that I agree with that, but only if we understand what might be happening. And I wonder if we apply the same logic, anyone who's ever used drugs in a ritualistic way or spent time with someone that has, there's, there's quite an incredible ritualistic process of engaging with that, that experience, you know, whether it's scoring, whether it's preparing, whether it's gathering to get that process underway. It's quite wonderful in, in terms of the energy that a person has in it and lots of skill. And so I suppose what I, my, my hypothesis in the dissociative addiction space is that this is going to occur when we lose connection, whatever it is we feel safe about. Often I'm thinking a person, but if it's not it's the environment, we're going to move into a dissociative, another new word, dissociative space um, where we lose primary consciousness over, oh, I'm going to find safety over here. And we move into that functional dissociation where we've still got access to the frontal lobe to process, but we lose connection and consciousness with others in our environment um, around us. And I think what, what I really like about this in my head is that what does a person need in that moment? And we don't necessarily know, but if we use the compassionate focus therapy approach and we think about the threat and the drive being, being changed, um, you know, so when the threat increases, the unsafety increases, the drive reduces towards safety, maybe. What do we need to bring the drive back into connection with them? We need to soothe And having worked in heroin communities, there's an explicit and overt mirror that when we induce opiates into our system, people feel safe again. And in the, in the compassion focused model, what do we do when we soothe ourselves? We increase the endogenous opiates and oxytocin to bring back the drive and reduce the threat. And so this is where I think that we need to much more clearly understand the drives and those processes and think about how we can support the person to soothe by coming back into connection instead of seeing their behaviours as in some way disruptive or dysfunctional. So just to summarise, I've gone way over, as everyone has seen, I don't do that. The disconnection, <laughs> just to summarise, the psychotic person may be in a state of feeling unsafe due to the action or being in relation to another person, as the individual cannot change the fact of another person existing. They change their own state and consciousness. The energy of this state serves to stable complete annihilation in existence of their existence and soul, but does leave them in a liminal space in the world. At this point, the psychosis can become exacerbated or the dissociative product state as the individual navigates the liminal space of existence and non-existence. You know, so now we're talking deeply about everything that we are, we're back to spirit and culture. The connection, well, when with the acceptance that the non-psychotic experience becomes a river through which trans transition might flow to deeper interconnectedness. So if we can see the process not as something aberrant and different, that's the bridge where we maintain and build on our thank you for listening to the podcast be sure to check out our patreon page at patreon.com slash nc raw you can become an nc raw patron for as little as a dollar a month what that'll do is that will go towards achieving our long-term goals of opening up a recording studio slash recovery community center in the Western North Carolina area. All NC raw patrons receive exclusive content offers every week. We do a little behind the scenes live stream prior to the guest arriving, uh, kind of like a one-on-one -on -one conversation with me and you as well as early release content. Um, you guys get it first. So Check out our Patreon page. Thank you for tuning into the podcast.